However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Once again, happy Mother's Day to all the moms who are meeting in this building and all the moms out there joining us online. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, the Bible says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, Disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. You know, in a climate that Paul is describing in that passage, one of the first casualties on loving the wrong things list can easily be our homes, our families. Because everything that Paul describes in that passage really tears at the fabric of our family lives and seeks to destroy it. That's happening even as we meet here in this building today. Everything from same-sex marriages to easily available pornography, educational goals that are awry, social movements that despise the very concept of family life, all of those things are out there hard at work. And they are seeking to destroy our families. Now, I don't intend for us to look only on the gloomy side of things this morning, but we do need to appreciate how very relevant the Word of God is as it addresses the needs that we have in our society and that many of us have in our homes. Why is this happening? Well, according to Paul's statement in this second letter to Timothy, it's because people are loving the wrong things. Let me say that again. People are loving the wrong things. And one of the right things that we need to be sure to love in these last days that Paul is describing, the last days of human history, is loving each other in our families. Now, there are three facts that we need to remember as we approach this subject this morning. Fact number one is that nobody has a perfect family. We may all want that. That may be our aspiration. But the reality is that does not exist. Families are populated by people. And people, by the very nature of the case, are imperfect. And that includes every single one of us. They're never going to be perfect this side of eternity. And so if you want to see the truth of that, just think about some of the families that we read about in the Bible, both Old and New Testament. I'm thinking all the way back to the very beginning of time. There was Adam and Eve, and the Bible record says that, that Adam blamed his wife for their sin. He, he said that she was the one who led in that transgression. And then later, one of their sons murdered the other son. Think about that. The very first couple, the first family on the planet, and they were dysfunctional. And then there was Noah, who saved his family by getting them on board an ark that had taken over a hundred years to build. But immediately thereafter, the Bible says that he got drunk and he did some disgraceful things that did not please the Lord. And then there was Abraham and Sarah later on in our Old Testaments. Abraham lied regarding his wife being his sister. Think about that. Now there's there's a formula for success in marriage, right? Try introducing your wife as your sister. See how that works out for you. 
And then at Sarah's own suggestion, the Bible says that he took a second wife who then became jealous. And the first wife wanted her thrown out. Abraham did that. But it also says that the sons born of those two women were at odds from then on. And then there was Abraham's grandsons, Jacob and Esau, who came out of their mother's womb competing with one another and never did fully learn to accept each other. You know, we could go on and on with those biblical illustrations, but you get the idea. And so our challenge is is to learn to, to live with one another in love. Families really are imperfect people, loving, imperfect people. And the good news is we can do just that, that it's possible, but we really, we really have to work at it. Here's a second thing that we need to appreciate, and it's a fact that needs to be applied as we think on this vital subject, and that is that every family is going to be tested in one way or the other. If your family has not yet been tested, it will happen eventually. I hate to be the harbinger of bad news, but that is the reality of it. And that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with your family. It just means that your family is normal because all families are going to be tested in one way or the other. The truth is Satan is busy at work. He does not want you to have a strong family. He will do everything that he can to prevent you having a strong family. And he has a host of ways of testing us, some of them that are talked about in Scripture and some of them that are not. But there's there's financial hardship and there's addictions and there's marital unfaithfulness and there's rebellious children. There's the neglecting of one's parents and on and on we could make that list almost infinitely long. And on top of all of that, we're living in a world that's conducive to everything, it seems, except having strong families. What with social media materialism, sexual temptation of every kind. I mean, you name it. In fact, I challenge you to think of one single aspect of our modern society that actually helps you to have a strong family. You will not find it. The world out there is not going to help you have a strong Christian family. That is the reality of it. But at the same time, and in the next breath, I assure you that that doesn't mean that it can't be done. But again, you have to work at it, and it means... It means loving each other with every breath that's in you. Here's fact number three. God wants you to have a strong family. You know, there's ample teaching in God's word about how to do just that. We're going to be looking at only one passage this morning in this study, but there, there's a host of them. There are a plethora of them in Scripture. But we have to follow that teaching. We have to discipline ourselves to create what we want and, and what God wants for us in our family units. Because remember, God wants you to have a strong family, and he's going to help you to do just that. Remember, here's a good place to start. Remember the fruit of the Spirit that's listed for us in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. And and Paul lists such things as love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and faithfulness and goodness and self-control. Are any of those things needed in your family? Think about that. What a wonderful way to start building strong families by each of us determining that we are going to develop those spiritual qualities in our lives and not looking to our husbands or our wives or to our our, our children to do that for us. No, we, we have the responsibility to discipline ourselves to develop those qualities on a daily basis. 
Now, with those three facts in mind, I invite you to turn back to Ephesians chapter 5. Tucker read verse 33 a moment ago, but I want us to look at some verses that come before that. Because Paul really is telling us something that we need to know, that we need to hear in our modern world. Because this is also Paul's most extensive instruction on family life. And we really need to sit up and take notice. But before we look at the text, let me mention three errors that will keep us from understanding what Paul is saying in this passage. Mistake number one is reading Ephesians chapter 5 as though Paul is trying to establish some kind of pecking order. And that's not what the passage is about. It's not to determine who's boss or who in the family gets their way when there's a disagreement, or who has authority over whom, that's not really mentioned in this passage at all. And yet sometimes we approach this passage, and that's the first thing that comes to mind. So that's mistake number one. There is no pecking order that's being established in Ephesians 5. Mistake number two is failing to read our own mail. Here's what I mean by that. The husband may easily read this passage and say, that's the scripture that tells you that I'm the boss. Or the wife may say, this passage tells you that you have to love me, so get busy. No, don't read what it says to your spouse or to your children or to your parents. Read your own mail. Mistake number three is reading verse 21 so that it mitigates or perhaps even negates verse 22. I've heard some people insist that verse 21 must be read and applied in such a way that there is ultimately no hierarchy of God-appointed leadership in the home. And I think that's doing this passage a great disservice. That, that you read that uh, first verse, verse 21, and say, well, that means that we're always submitting to one another in the home. And so that means there really is no one who is the head or has the leadership in that home. That's not what Paul is really talking about it all. Verse 21 is giving us a general principle for spiritual success in our lives, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. As you're looking at it, that's what the passage says. And then verse 22 starts telling us exactly how to do that. The nuts and the bolts of being able to submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. And Paul, not remarkably, but understandably starts right there, inside your house and inside my house he starts with the fundamental unit of human society and that's the home and so he's telling us how to do that to submit to one another in that way and that means giving to each other what the other needs most from you whether it's easiest for you or not in fact we're going to find even in our study this morning that there are some things that Paul is going to call upon us to do especially as husbands and wives that are very difficult. But if you remember that the original text of the Bible had no chapter divisions, you might want to skirt down to look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 then, would also include the children, the kiddos, in this divine formula for success in our families. And don't miss that. The children have a tremendous responsibility in making the home everything that it can be and that it ought to be. Now look at verses 22 through 24 especially. Here's where Paul deals with wives submitting to their husbands. Now I know that in today's world we would rather just skip over those verses. Because we're afraid that we're going to offend someone. And we're afraid that we're going to 
to at least imply that someone in this relationship is superior to the other. That's not what Paul is talking about at all. But we've kind of gotten so paranoid about living in our world and not ever saying anything that offends anybody that, that, that we've left this verse out or these, or, or these verses. And, and that, friends, is exactly why the homes in America are in the sad shape they're in because we have forgotten God's word that regulates these relationships. No, when all else fails, let's read the instructions. And so that's what I want us to do for a few minutes together this morning. Why does Paul use the word submit here? That's the sticking point for a lot of people. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Again, you will not hear that out in the world. Some say it's because Paul was a misogynistic old bachelor. So he just sat around thinking stuff up that would keep women in their place. I've I've actually read that theory. And you're probably not far into that either. You've heard that as well. But the passage has been just so abused and so misused down through the ages, but, but never so, more so than right now in human history. Paul uses the word submit here because that's what your husband, wives, that's what he most needs from you. And that is a recognition, listen carefully, a recognition of your spiritual leadership in your home. Also note that when women submit to their husbands in the way that Paul is describing in this passage, they're doing more than just showing respect for their husbands and, and deference to his leadership in the home. They're also showing their respect for God who put this plan in place. Look back in verse 21, in the fear of the Lord. And so when you do this, when you are willing to submit to the leadership of your husband in the home, you are showing deference really to, to God and respect for his law because he's the one who has thus organized our families and has put these things in place. So Paul then compares the husband's leadership or leadership in the home to Christ's own headship in relation to his body, which of course is the church. And, and, and just thinking about that used as an analogy is a wonderful thing. Bottom line is that God has made your husband the head of your family, and in order to fulfill that need, listen to me, wives, they need your cooperation. And, and I mean that in, in the most intense way I possibly can, can speak it. This isn't any kind of power trip that's going on here. If the wife fails to submit to her husband's leadership in the home, he is not supposed to bully her into submission. I repeat, it requires your cooperation, wives, to make this work. Your submission must be voluntary. But it also is important to note that the word head here doesn't necessarily just mean decision maker. Although it can include that, but it's a much broader term than that. It certainly doesn't mean, as as one spineless husband said, you perhaps have heard this. He said, when we got married, we agreed that she would make all the minor decisions. And that I would make all the major decisions. We've been married 40 years and we've never had a major decision. Well, you can't play it off like that. That's not the way this works. So what is Paul meaning here? Well, he gives us a major clue, I think, by including a word in this description of Jesus' own spiritual leadership of his church. When he says that Christ is the head of the church, but he's not through. And he is the savior 
of the body. That adds a a, a special dimension to the husband-wife relationship. He gave himself up for us. He makes it possible for every one of us to have life with him in eternity. That is the essence of why Jesus came to this earth. And so that's very different than having a boss that just orders us around and has no real interest in what is best for us. No, husbands are to treat and deal with their wives as Christ did his church. He has only their best interest in mind. So we don't, we don't cower under the Lord's leadership, do we? We welcome it. And I think that's what Paul is saying is the ideal marriage. Is that when the godly wife can welcome the spiritual leadership of her godly husband in that home. Now, as the church submits to Christ, wives should submit, and that's the Greek word hupotasso there, to their own husbands. And that word has the idea of a ranking. It doesn't mean superiority or inferiority at all. It simply means that God has placed this hierarchy in the home and that somebody has got to be the one that uh, is the point man who, who deals with those situations and has been granted by God himself the leadership of that home. Now, wives, there's something here that you need to know about your husbands in order for you to be able to swallow this and for you to accept this and for you to apply this in your home and in your family relationships. And here's what you need to know. Your husband needs this from you because all men, at least everyone that I've ever met, struggle with their own sense of adequacy. He needs this from you. Godly men, and I emphasize godly men, do not see this passage as a club with which to beat their wives into submission. The reality is for most of us, God has given us a job, a task, a role, much like Moses in the Old Testament, that we feel absolutely unqualified for. I don't know how I can accept this responsibility. I don't know how I can do this. I mean, every boy and and young man growing up has, has this internal struggle. Am I adequate? Am I competent? Can I make the team? Can I make the grade? Can I land the job? Can I provide for my family? Can I succeed at work? Can I lead my wife and children? Can I make my wife happy? And there are times when we wonder, can I make anybody happy? And wives, you need to know that your voluntary submission gives us that assurance that yes, you are adequate. And yes, I do accept your leadership. And yes, I do love you. And yes, you are the leader that this family needs. That's what husbands most need from their wives. Then look at verses 25 through 33, just for a moment, where Paul begins to address the husbands. And and all of that that he's going to say really is encapsulated in these three words. Husbands, well, this would make it four. Husbands, love your wives. Let's begin with a part and admitting the obvious. Husbands, love your wives and not somebody else's wife. You know, when you hear that, we kind of want to ha-ha and laugh that off. The last stats I read that in our nation, over 60% of married men will at some point be unfaithful to their wife, over 60%. So let's begin by saying what should be obvious, but clearly is not in our culture. You husbands, you dedicate yourself to your loving your own wife in every way that the Bible implies. Now, if you want to count words, you'll notice that Paul says a whole lot more to the men in this passage than he does to the women. 
Why is that? Well, because if a woman is going to submit to a man, and she's going to make herself vulnerable in that way by saying, I accept your leadership, then he's going to have to give her what she needs most. And what is that? Essentially two things, love and protection. So how is he to love her? Well, Paul tells us, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Wow, that is setting the bar very high in case you've not noticed. If the wife's role can be best summed up with the word submission, then the husband's role in this passage and in our homes can be best summed up with the term self-sacrificing love. It's giving her what she most needs from him, just as Jesus did for us. So in a sense, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, in a sense, God is telling husbands, you need to be Jesus to her. That is, in this way, you you need to to be willing to sacrifice everything, even your life, for your wife. Just as Jesus did when he was nailed to the cross and we commemorated as we gathered around this table this morning. In that sense, you need to recognize how important that self-sacrificing love is. Not just important, it is absolutely essential. And in that kind of arrangement, there's no dominating, there's no abusing power, there's no no bossing of of the husband and the wife around. They're just sacrificing love for her and putting yourself in last place in that relationship because you have made the conscious decision that that is exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to wake up every day, committed myself to doing what is best for my wonderful wife. And Paul reminds us that Jesus did all of that for us so that he might present us to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish. That's the ideal. That's the way Jesus wants to see us the next time we see him face to face. And and Paul reminds us that Jesus did all of that for us in order that 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 finished product might become a reality. And then he says, in the same way, watch that church, in the same way husbands should love their wives. Note that he then gives us a point of reference. Love them even as you love your own bodies. Well, in reality, loving your wife is loving yourself. Because you're never going to be fully satisfied and happy unless she feels loved. May I say that again? You, husbands, will never be fully satisfied or completely happy unless your wife feels loved. So it really is a win-win situation, what Paul is recommending for us in our homes. In reality, Paul says, loving your wife is loving yourself. So ideally, most of us take pretty good care of our bodies. At least we, we, we think that we give them what they need, like you know, food and clothing and sufficient rest and so on. But in fact, Paul says that a man nourishes and cherishes his own body just as Christ does the church. Why? Because we are members of his body. Each of us who are gathered here and around this world today, we're members of Christ's spiritual body, his church. And, and that's the way he has made the conscious decision to treat each of us. Now, the pattern for marriage was established back in the very beginning of time in Genesis chapter 224. If you've forgotten, here's what it says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother cling to his wife. That's the original plan for marriage. And God is the one who designed it, and he is the one who defined it. Look at that more closely. There's a man and a woman, Moses writes. And then more specifically, there is one man and one woman. 
and the two become one flesh, which is a profound mystery. That, and, and that really is a profound mystery. It's, it's still much discussed and debated as to the exact meaning of, of that. But Paul says it accurately describes the relationship between Christ and, and his glorious bride, which is the church. Christ and the church is a perfect model for that love-submission relationship that is so precious to us, or at least ought to be. Now, this insight gives us an idea as to how important a strong marriage really is because it reflects the bond between Christ and his church. And again, I'm grateful that Paul chose those two parallels. And, And then verse 33 summarizes, Tucker read it a moment ago, but it summarizes our responsibilities to one another with these words, let each of you, that's the husbands, let each of you love your wife, love his wife as himself, let the wife see that she respects her husband. We've actually gone through that book, Love and Respect, in, in this congregation a few years back. But, but when you have that, that perfect combination, that synchronicity in the home, it is a mighty, beautiful thing. And I want you to know that it forms the foundation of a strong and a healthy marriage. And then skip down to chapter 6. We're almost through here. Chapter 6, verse 1, is where Paul continues this thought of building a strong home by saying, Obey your parents in the Lord. Now he's talking to the kiddos in that relationship. Why? Well, I absolutely love the simplicity of his answer. Because this is right. That is the only reason you need because this is the right thing to do it is God's plan for the family parents who love each other children who respect and obey their parents and then verse 2 of chapter 6 quotes the fifth of the ten commandments which says honor your father and mother that you may live long on the earth let me stop for just a moment and say I don't think that Paul is just saying so that you will live to be a ripe old age I think maybe a little bit more is meant by that but so that Maybe Israel would survive as a people. What was true of Israel is also true in our Christian community in 2022. Only if the family is strong, and that's only as long as children continue to honor their parents. Otherwise, your days as a people are numbered. So if society falls, why is that? It's because the families that constitute that society have fallen. And folks, that's why this ought to be a matter of paramount importance to each of us. So the exact same thing is true today. No society will long survive if the families that comprise it are not strong and families won't be strong, Paul says, unless parents are honored in this way. Think about that, young folks. You've got a great influence in your family, only, not only on the health of your your family specifically, but on the society in which you live. That means that what you do as a son or a daughter really, really, really matters. And never forget what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that we read at the very beginning. There will be some in the last days, he said, who will be disobedient to their parents. And that always contributes to the breakdown of society in general. And that's a big Huge responsibility. Finally, look at chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Some versions say to discouragement, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The question that sometimes comes up when these verses are discussed is, why does Paul address this just to fathers? Why not to parents? Why didn't he say moms and dads? 
Well, it's possibly because the father is the designated head of the household, as we've seen back in chapter 5. And so that is his primary responsibility. He is to be the one who's walking point in, in the spiritual direction and guidance of that home. That's a possibility. Or it's a possibility that Paul is using fathers in a linguistic, accommodative sense, and he really means parents. But I, I lean toward the first of these. I think it's because God has given that to us as fathers, as the spiritual leader of our home, as our primary responsibility. You, and obviously, moms and dads are to both be involved in the spiritual instruction of their children, but dads simply cannot slough that responsibility off to her and say, I've done my job because I've made sure that my children have received that instruction. No, you're to be the one who's the primary person in making sure this happens. Now, parents have to walk a fine line between two extremes here. Extreme number one is over-disciplining your children and by being unnecessarily harsh. By setting the bar so high for your kids that they can never reach that, they, they, they can never please you. And, and, and so Paul said, you know what, you're going to wind up with a very discouraged child who eventually will say, why bother? I can't please mom or dad, and so I'm just going to quit trying. Children are, we need to remember, after all, just children. And, and if we're too harsh on them, that's going to hinder their healthy development. But the other extreme, and you probably already figured this out, is failing to discipline them at all. I wish the woman at the library the other day heard this because that's what the little boy that was in her care needed most. I mean, he had to come apart. And, and, and it was uh, clear defiance to what she wanted for him. That's when, we, that's when we just need to open our Bibles and remind ourselves of Paul's inspired words, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, that's not just to see that they go to school and they do the homework. That's to see that they go to church because they're going with us and that they're receiving spiritual instruction there, but... That is supplemental to the instruction and training that we give them at home. Are you hearing me, parents? If we're relying upon our teachers at church and our youth minister to do the spiritual instruction for our children, we've already missed the boat. God did not give these instructions to youth ministers. He gave them to moms and dads. And so we've got to make sure that we're doing that kind of training and that kind of instruction. That's teaching in the home while our kids are still under your roof. Always be equipping them with what they need to face life in the world. And most of all, to prepare them for life in the next world. Because I'm here to announce that teaching them to make a life is far more important than teaching them to just make a living. Now here's a great paradox that involves, that's involved in family life. Here it is. Our, our families can be the source of our greatest joy, or they can also be the source of our greatest heartache. What's the difference? Well, primarily, it's whether or not we pay attention to our individual God-given responsibilities to love one another in our families, to submit to one another, and to gladly give each other what each one most needs. But Brother Randy, what if my husband or my wife or my children or my parents, what if they don't do their part? What can I do then? 
Well, admittedly, the truth is you may not be able to do much about that. Here's something that I've noticed in living life for a few years. You cannot make other people do right. But you are in control of what you do. So Paul isn't just dealing with the contingencies or the hypotheticals. What if nobody else in my family unit is willing to do any of these things? Paul says, make absolutely certain, though, that you're doing the right thing. Your, your home, your family is not going to be any stronger if you become so discouraged by everyone else's failure to live up to Paul's ideal here that you're not doing it anymore. Paul is just telling us and reinforcing your home is not going to be any better off if you don't do your part. And that's what Paul is calling upon every one of us to do as we live in these last days. And maybe what is needed most for your home this morning to be a thoroughly Christian home is for you to yield your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, to turn away from sin and repentance, confess Jesus as God's son, and to be baptized to allow his blood to wash away every, your, every one of your sins. And you can begin today to make your home a Christian home by doing just that, and that's what we call you to as we stand and as we sing.